0: There's a lot of, of heightened activity and, and, and sensitivity around security nowadays, both on the federal side and in the broader industry. You don't have to look too far into the news to see the yet another attack, yet another data breach. The, the key is, is that the change is that we have to, in, outside our organizations, start to take seriously both how do we protect ourselves and, like you were just talking about, the incident response. What do we do when we've been attacked? Hey, folks, welcome to That Tech
1: Show with me, Samuel Gregory, and Chris Adams. Hey, thanks for joining.
2: And this week we've got a great guest. We've got Steve Orin, the CTO for Intel Federal. So if that's not
1: intriguing, I don't know what is. But more on that later.
2: So what's new this week, Sam?
1: Well, this week, <laughs> this week I've been doing a challenge. I've been challenging myself and uh, <laughs> physically, mentally, physically, mentally, <laughs> um, <laughs> everything, everything, and in between. Because uh, yeah, so I, I, I've been wearing a VR headset. All week, or we- it's going to be all week. Now we're on Wednesday. Uh, this episode is going to be released on Thursday. So, all week so far, I've been wearing a VR headset for work. Well, just work actually, because I want to. <laughs> I'm glad you've left it. At just work. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> have you been? You're in the. You're
2: you're in the office though, right? So, have you been on the tube with this? Have you no, been cycling? No. <laughs> no,
1: I was going to say, I have to get home somehow. And uh, yeah, cycling with a headset on, isn't it? it's not AR, it's not AR. So I'm um, to, you know, to cut a long story short, I'm hoping to go traveling uh, soon. And one of my small anxieties uh, is around the fact that I've grown accustomed to having monitors, you know, being productive and having multiple monitors and working like that. And I thought to myself well if I'm traveling I can only take so much with me you know I can only take my Hmm. laptop and I can't take my monitor with me basically uh but I thought well I've got this VR headset and there's this wonderful app called Immersed um and it allows me to have up to five monitors plus my phone or four monitors plus my phone I don't know I haven't tried that yet
2: oh so your phone's on the VR headset as well so you don't have to you know look away or lift your headset up
1: uh, yeah, but I can only look at my phone. I still need to somehow navigate my phone without looking at it. But yeah, I can see if a message pops up, I can see that. Or if I leave it unlocked, as an example, you know, it uh, might be a bit better. But um, it's not the most ideal situation, but it is usable. Is that um, intuitive
2: enough so that you can actually use the phone? And can you actually use the phone and, and interact with it whilst you're viewing it in the headset?
1: That's what I mean. So I'm basically... Because I need to touch type when I use my computer because yeah. of course i'm wearing a, a a headset i don't know where my fingers are same with my phone i don't know where my thumb is on my phone right. um i can't use my hands or my um what do you call them the joystick things whatever you call them in vr to tap my phone or do anything i have to physically touch my phone to navigate around it. Mm. which of course i'm doing blind or at least just poking around like a a big poker i don't know um but uh, <laughs>
2: I see. We're really hitting uh, hitting point on the analogies this morning. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's been a
1: long day. So anyway, um, but you yeah, know, I realised that I've got all these monitors in my headset. But of course, again, going going away and travelling, you know, I want to make sure that I'm productive and I can do things that you know efficiently. And I thought, well, something I want to do, why not just why not just spend a week doing it way before i'm intending on going traveling and see what issues i encounter and uh, as i explained before this intro um i tried to do this call in in vr and uh the 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 Wi Fi issues basically. So these little things mm. I'm encountering, I'm trying to overcome them. Um I, I'm pretty confident this is just a Wi Fi issue, so but could be an issue in the Wi Fi that I have there, you know, Absolutely, when I'm out yeah. and about. So it's just just trying to encounter all these different issues and how I'd resolve them. And you said it's not augmented reality then? No, so I can't see I can't see a thing. I'm in space. So how do you walk around? I don't walk around, I just sit at my desk. I just
2: yeah. All right, so you are having to take it off to go to the kitchen and stuff then?
1: yeah 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 okay. i mean i don't i don't have to to be fair because there's this little feature where you double tap the side of it and it shows me a pass through because i'm showing chris now the headset you can see these black dots maybe around there they're actually cameras oh yeah but it's a it's a poor ah, quality okay. black and white image so i could technically walk around but i don't really want to do that because i'm already looking like a fool waving my arms around sitting <laughs> at my desk um
2: and uh, have you been getting some strange looks or or I suppose you're oblivious I don't I'm oblivious to them
1: i completely oblivious uh, to them so yeah uh, I don't mind you know I like to do my own thing I like to um I'm not affected by other people's opinions and and I'm 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 excited by
2: technology You're you're over that you've dropped the ego
1: Yeah the ego has <laughs> gone So but it's fun it it's really good fun and um I'm really excited. I've got, we've obviously got a podcast recording tomorrow. Um, We've got, I've got a presentation that I want to do. And these are little things that you would expect to encounter on a day-to-day kind of business case. And I want to see what the, what, how the VR, um, you know, enhances that or, or how do I navigate that or just, just challenge myself effectively. But I am documenting this and I'm recording this. So um, expect a, expect a, a YouTube video pretty soon on my on my findings because i think it could be really useful because it's something i could not find online when i was looking how do i use this as as, in a business context what's useful here so first and foremost it gives me four monitors four screens i've got my design on one side code in the middle preview on the right in the browser you know slack on on at the top and uh, all will be revealed in the in the in the youtube video
2: i'm looking forward to it and uh, I, I do want to see, like, a, a view of you actually using it in the office as well to see how yeah. how, how insane you look. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got
1: some time lapses that I've recorded of me using it. Um, and, I mean, you, you, it's very, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll leave it there and, and let the video... Intr- that we, intrigue we you dis- enough. Well,
2: as we discussed, though, I think you do need those googly eyes to go on the front of it. Yeah, I think, I, think, that
1: I think that will at least put other people at ease, <laughs> you know. But.
2: Well, it might actually put people at ease. I mean, yeah. you might find that people are just laughing at you all the time, but it might put
1: people at ease. Because the thing is, if I'm sitting next to someone, imagine my monitor is a curved monitor that I've got in VR. I look to my left monitor and I'm looking directly at someone. <laughs> do you know what I mean or, or the right hand side I'm looking directly out the window and I, I heard people say I can't get over like looking at him he's just looking out the window but obviously in VR I'm I'm looking at my monitors you know yeah you definitely need the googly eyes on that I think it's yeah, really going to yeah, add, yeah. add a little something and, and maybe some eyebrows yeah, yeah, yeah. I need what I need to do is is apply them without really telling anyone. And then when I hear someone speaking or commenting about it, I'll turn and snap at them. And all all they'll see is these googly eyes that am watching you or something like this, <laughs> something like that. could put, play some pranks. But yeah, the awesome eyelashes or I don't know. Well, oh yeah, yeah. I, I'd There's say a fake mustache, do. but I've got a real mustache, and you can obviously yeah, see yeah, that. You've grown a full headset. mustache. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, big boy now. Big boy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, well, anyway, well, without further ado, today on the show, we have Steve Orrin, Chief Technology Officer for Intel Federal. And that feels like a huge deal to me, having grown up being obsessed over the latest Intel chipsets.
1: Keeping things topical, though, with the uh, current threat to the world at the moment, both physical and virtual, we'll be talking to Steve all about cyber threats, federal cyber threat response, and the role that Intel plays in advancing technology with the federal government.
2: Well, that's a lot to cover. So without further ado, here's Steve Orrin. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: My name is Steve Oren. I'm the federal CTO for Intel Corporation, and I drive our technology uh, architecture solutions and direction for our engagements with the federal government and help the federal government adopt technologies, both that's available here today, as well as what's coming in the future.
2: Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show. And um, I think we've got plenty to talk about considering that, uh, that involvement specifically with the, with the government and what's going on in the world right now. Where should we start? I mean, how are you uh, in- engaging with, uh, with, with the government at this time? Anything specific?
0: So I think a lot of the focus really comes into two areas. Uh, there's obviously a heightened awareness around security and cyber threat both on enterprise systems as well as uh, deployed assets in the field. And so whether it be uh, some new initiatives, uh, there was a Senate bill that was passed recently around incident reporting, really trying to elevate the ability for industry and government to work together around the increase in cyber attacks. And so helping the government understand how to protect itself and how it can help the broader uh, industry globally to protect themselves from ransomware, from uh, targeted nation stake attacks and APTs, and from the variety of data breach style attacks that we're seeing, there's a lot of activity going on there. So it ranges from everything from the processes and organizational structures, to be able to do information flow across industry, to the government, to the tactics of how do I protect my system? How do I protect the cloud? How do I um, do the end to end story? And I think that's something that really is where a lot of the interesting information you know the really interesting stuff is is it happens in the connections there's been a lot of focus i need to protect my pc i need to protect a server here or i had this cloud but it's really when you look at that end-to-end story of how data flows back and forth from the edge to the cloud across cloud domains where security can become a real challenge and so it's helping the government and helping the ecosystem that uh, enables the government you know the federal the contractors the broad industry players and cloud providers to provide a comprehensive architectural approach to security, and then really helping the government to adopt it and deploy it. Because you know you can have great stuff on paper, but unless you can scale it, nothing really happens. I think that's where a lot of the focus right now and the heightened security we're seeing with the current recent events in the world are just elevating that need. But we've seen the topic of security you know, for the past several years, both with the uh, initial push to work from home and how that changed the way the government and industry deals with security, by extending your perimeter really all the way out to your home, to some of you know, the ransomware uptick that we've seen in the last couple of years, and highlighting just how vulnerable a lot of organizations can be to these kinds of attacks.
2: And are you seeing a, an, a, an elevated interest from the government in recent years? Is that, is that something that's, that's happened or is it, has it been sort of relatively constant?
0: I think that from the government has been relatively constant on the need to secure their systems they they've always been at the the forefront of being a target and you hear about certain attacks over the, over the past number of years where they've been you know in the in the news about their targeting but i think the change has been the interconnectedness that we're seeing as the government and industry everyone moves to the cloud and starts using their sort of commercial software so we saw big incidents like the solar winds attack from last year and, and a year and a half ago where a a key software provider to both industry and government uh, was was fairly deeply compromised. And that led to a supply chain attack so that their software that was delivered had uh, malware embedded. And that really uh, heightened the sensitivity of understanding your supply chain i think that was the big shift that we saw there have been talks there have been some really good papers um, MITRE wrote a great paper called deliver on compromised a, a number of years ago back in i think 2018 or 2019 talking about supply chain security but i think it hit home with solar winds and then shortly thereafter we had code cov and then most recently log4j are all examples of where software had either inherent vulnerabilities or actual malware embedded that was delivered to the broad industry and government. And so it really highlighted, we need to start taking security seriously. And what we're seeing as a response is sort of a three-pronged approach. One is we need to understand our supply chain. That was a, a new big focus. The executive order that was signed by the White House back in May of 21 highlighted that as we've got to get a handle on our supply chain and every agency has to have a plan. Part two, was, and this is what the Senate bill that just came out really uh, furthered is we've got to get the information flow. Industry needs to be able to communicate with a single point within the government about when incidents happen, the government needs to be able to do a better job of communicating to industry and to the software players and hardware players about cyber incidents they're seeing. So really setting up that collaboration and not just with the U.S. government, but really globally about how we communicate incidents and threats. And then the last piece, and it's, it sometimes gets buried down in the, in the guts of the, of the documents, but it's really the buzzword right now, is around zero trust and zero trust architecture. And I know for a lot of us in the industry, we see something like zero trust and then the knee jerk reactions, oh, yeah, another product category. It's not, it, you know, CIOs say, oh, if I just do zero trust, I'm done. But the reality is it's not a technology by itself. It's not a binary. If I, you know, flip a switch, get zero trust, I'm done. It's an approach it's a methodology and it's a way of uh, implementing security and implementing processes to change the way you look at your security so it's not are you in or are you out it's not a binary are you good are you bad it's evaluating the risk of a, a particular transaction or a particular access at that moment in time and then not just making a decision and, and living with it but making continuous decisions and that change in philosophy is you know embedded in some of these uh, in the executive order and in the memorandum that came out in January, but it's also in the whole industry's approach to looking at a risk-based approach to security. And that's what the government I think has put shined a light on is we have to stop thinking about security as a point solution or as a checklist, but as a continuous, you know, continuous monitoring, continuous authentication, continuous assessment. It's an it's a marathon, it's an ongoing marathon. It's not a sprint and it's not a, you know, fill out the list and you're done kind of activity. So, that, that zero
2: trust thing, can you just unpack that a bit more for us? So, I mean, because you're talking about the zero trust, you're talking about the supply chain. I mean, is this the sort of things that are built into software that you're talking about, or is it a different approach?
0: So, let's unpack both of those things. Um, when we look at software supply chain and really secure supply chain in general, it's about visibility. Now, that comes with having features built into software and around the delivery infrastructure so you can have that visibility. How do you know that the software you just downloaded from a website? A, is coming from the source that it's supposed to be, and that the software itself hasn't changed. How do you know where that software was built? What are the components? That, the, the means to do that is going to require the software suppliers and vendors to add more information either in the product or as artifacts associated with it, and then the trust mechanism so you can verify that trust but verify kind of concept. And the importance of that is, and I'll pick on Log4j, is you know when Log4j was announced, it was a big vulnerability and a foundational sort of embedded technology in a lot of products. The first question any CISO had to ask is, well, how many of my products and how much of my infrastructure is affected? If it were a product from a vendor, if you know XYZ Acme company sold you a software product and it was vulnerable, you can go see, well, how many licenses of you know Acme product do I have? But if I have 20, 30, even 100 different software packages, and some percent of them have this embedded piece of software, unless they've told me that they have Log4j as one of the components... I have no way of assessing my current risk based on this new vulnerability that was exposed. That's at the heart of software and secure supply chain is gaining visibility into the building blocks of the product. So as vulnerabilities or threats and risks are 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 indicated, I can make a proper risk decision, whether it means to shut down that software or to wrap it up into a tight firewall or do something, some mitigation. But without that visibility, I have no way of knowing. The second part of supply chain is also being a verify your vendors. We take we put a lot of trust in the internet. I, I downloaded the update from some you know from this website. It must be good, unless you can verify that infrastructure. And this and there are mechanisms to do this. It's hashing. It's digital signatures, to verify that you know you are in fact going to the Microsoft download site. You are in fact going to the Dell or HP firmware update site. Those kind of mechanisms help a company, an organization to validate that they're getting the stuff from a a legitimate source and not being man in the middle or diverted through something like a DNS attack or something like that. And that's sort of a process. It requires technology, but it's about the processes for what they call supply chain risk management. Zero Trust is also not a technology, although technologies are necessary to implement it. It's a process. It's an approach. It's more a methodology sometimes it's referred to which is how do you apply those security technologies? How do you apply those controls? And how do you make the risk determinations continuously for the application of those controls? If you think about sort of a before and after kind of approach, in the past you'd had you know, firewalls and antivirus, intrusion detection systems, large scale databases of all the events. You have all these security technologies that are providing some level of control and information about the security and threat of your environment. What Zero Trust says is, you know, don't throw that all away. What it's saying, though, is assess the decisions about giving access to your users or to your partners, giving having data move from one place to the other based on a risk determination at that moment. Whereas in the past, if, you know if you were to log in, Chris, into a system, once you've logged in, you're good. You can have access to everything. Mm-hmm. Well, Zero Trust says, no, we're going to authenticate <laughs> you at this moment. You're accessing a Word document here. I authenticated you for that transaction. When you go try to pull an Excel document from another place, I'm going to re-verify that A, you are the right, that you are you and B, that you should have access to that document and c that nothing has changed in the network threat environment in the time between you first authenticated and now. And again, the technologies are kind of how you implement it, but it's making that continuous assessment of the risk and of the action at every point Is is the idea of, you know, fail close or default deny and continuously authenticate. So you don't just get access, you know, once you get through the front gate, every step of the way, we're going to re-verify that you are the, you are Chris and you are allowed to access that piece of data.
2: Limiting that sort of access as you go through the network. Exactly. Because I think that's how a lot of the, I mean, obviously, this is my very layman's term explanation of internet security, but obviously, once you've found some vulnerability in a software, then you're using that once you're in the network to then try and find other things you can, you can find on the network. And so I suppose if you have that zero trust approach, you are sort of limiting the access that's available there.
0: Yeah, we 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 used to call this defense in depth, um, and the analogy people use is is an egg. You know, you're a raw egg. If I get through the shell, it's all soft and gooey. To get through everything, but if I hard bowl that egg, every step of the process is is harder. The, the, what was missing from defense defense in depth of having multiple checks along the way, was the risk assessment at you know, So how do I know what's good or bad at any given moment? Does my, is my threat environment change? That's the really aha, of zero trust is taking the things we've done in the past around, you know, defense and death controls and policies and applying them in real time based on the current threat environment. So right now there's a heightened worldwide sensitivity to threats coming from the conflict going on in Europe. We know there's gonna be an uptick in cyber attacks across the board. So our threat environment is different than it was three weeks ago. So we should make our security determinations based on the current threat environment, not on a decision that was made six years ago when we first implemented the firewall.
2: Hmm. Makes sense. Hard-boiled networks in real time. Um, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The the Log4J one was quite interesting, I think, because I I think that's the sort of thing where, you know, we kind of knew roughly where that might be in our system if it was a thing that we were using. So a particular client I was working with, I think, you know, 600 something apps i think we knew a few hundred that had it in and obviously you could do uh, static analysis scans to try and identify you know where exactly that was i think what's probably more complex though specifically around that, that supply chain piece is if you take like more of the front end technologies like anything you're installing with npm there's so many dependencies that get installed off the back of that. How do you know whether you've actually got that in your system or not? Because no one's really trawling through their node modules.
0: That's a very good question. And that's really the topic that was kicked off in a lot of the government and industry collaborations around how do we get visibility into the aspects of what are the building blocks of products? There's a concept that's being worked on right now as a standard called SBOM, or Software Bill of Materials, which is one approach there are others but it's probably one of the main ones that has the most support right now of a means by which a supplier or software vendor can within a standard format document all the modules all those dependencies that build up a given product whether it be a front-end whether it be a back-end tool a driver everything from firmware all the way up to you know web services and microservices to have a defined frame a schema for how you codify all the pieces that went in there so that it's both human and machine readable so that you could suck it into a a product that can go scan and say, well, what are the CVEs? What are the vulnerabilities for all of these things? And have I I got the right version to make sure I don't have a, a log4j that's vulnerable? Or do I have a compensating control to block any internet access from that app while I figure out how to fix it? The, the sas bomb is one of the main approaches being looked at today, and it would require the software vendor and any suppliers. And, and again, it's understanding we have a complex supply chain. It's not the old days where if I just, I bought Word from Microsoft and that was my supplier and my vendor. It's now when you think about sort of apps on the web and complex cloud services and SaaS models, there could be multiple change of third party, fourth party, fifth party players. And so the idea of bomb is to help you capture that. So you can put your information into the same schema and have your third party downstream suppliers put their information into it so that the end customer can get visibility into what's in the box enough to make that risk determination. Now it's never gonna be foolproof and it does require all the players to participate. But what it it allows for on the the customer side, so the acquiring customer, whether it be a large bank or the federal government, is that upfront they can make a risk determination. Step one, is my supplier or software vendor giving me an SBOM? If not, that goes into my calculation of whether I'm going to buy that product or what am I going to have to do to secure it because I don't have visibility. And if they do give me SBOM, then I'm going to go scan through it and make a determination of how risky is this software right now and what's really important is every time I get an update, I can continually scan that SBOM against the vulnerability list and see something's changed. That's the other benefit is that it's, you know, we, we know about log4j, so we're all looking for log4j. Two months from now, there'll be some other module that's vulnerable or that's found to have an exploit. SBOM allows me to then quickly scan those artifacts to see, well, what in my enterprise has that module? And what's the vulnerability that I have to then mitigate against? And so it allows you to get that visibility and that's going to be, I think, how software and services start to be developed going forward. Now, groups like NIST in the U.S. and working in concert with the EU and other world organizations are working on codifying so that it's not 20 different standards that are out there for how to how to capture this information. And that's a you know work in progress. But the idea is sound of that we need to get that visibility in a way that is easy enough for the vendors to do their job. And the acquiring organizations to be able to then make that risk determination
2: yeah and how do we do this without it getting hard as well because i can i just feel like is this going to be a thing that massively slows down software development i mean maybe rightly so but how how do we
0: compensate for that it's a very good point. And actually that, that gets brought up multiple times by the software vendor community in these conversations. Um, I made a, a joke at one of those meetings where you know this is an ide- ideal place for a venture capital firm to go invest in a company that <laughs> automates the process for capturing the, the components as part of the DevSecOps kind of uh, workflow. And the reality is our, our development environments are much richer than we were, you know, 10 years ago, even, where we have APIs in the software dev, where yeah, as you do builds, as you do, you know, sort of these, you know, micro compiles, the information is actually there. You sort of know what you're building a your product on. And so there's there are mechanisms to automate that process. It It's hard today, but I think as, you know, as the need increases, vendors that are both in the software development lifecycle today, as well as, you know, up and coming startups are gonna see a, a really rich opportunity to help automate in the space of, of applying this sort of supply chain risk management deep into the software development lifecycle to make it less painful and less hard. Now, in the open source community of places, there are mechanisms in place. You know how, you know, you can see all the code, you have to do it from a licensing perspective. So there's a lot more visibility than some of the uh, commercial products or, or closed source style products. But I think that the tools can be built Help make it hard, but it's definitely not going to be a switch that's flipped and suddenly every software product has an S bomb.
2: It, It feels like there would be quite an attitude change that's probably required within the software development community as well, though. Because I don't know. I mean, I think every front end project. I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say every front end project I've ever opened always has out of date dependencies, and everybody can see this. It reports it in the in the console when you start up the project, and that is seen as acceptable. And in fact, you know, organizations are always going to lead on delivering new features to customers rather than sort of site reliability engineering or operational excellence or whatever it is that exactly that you want to call it.
0: It's a very good point. I think if you look at the initiatives that are going on in the US federal government, one of the key shifts is around changing the way we acquire. You know, the government acquires products. Because that's really, and it goes back to... Uh, what are the lines in the deliver uncompromised paper that MITRE put out back and I think it was 2018. It's about making security the fourth pillar of acquisitions. You know, it's about you know, functionality, time to market, and cost were the three pillars of anytime you buy a piece of software, making security a foundational part of the acquisition process. And so for the government now, there's terms that are gonna be changed in the acquisition policies that make supply chain risk management a requirement And so it comes back to the edge and put your money, put the money where your mouth is. If we're going to change the way that software is built and delivered, it's going to have a cost and that cost is going to have to come from the customer. Being willing to pay the extra fee or whatever you want to call it for getting more secure and better supply chain visibility. And the only way that's going to happen is if they make it a requirement, if you, if a large organization says I won't buy software unless it has these features that's gonna be the the impetus to get the software industry to move and that will flow down because as big software vendors wanting to support the big customers, build these products in, then the small medium businesses, small companies that don't have the same cloud as a large company, benefit from the software vendor community adopting those technologies and those methodologies to meet the bigger customers. The government is definitely taking a leadership role here. And we, we will see there again, still a lot of work to be done, but there, the proposal is to have changes to the contracting uh, policies and regulations within the next year or so, so that all new software and and system level acquisitions build in supply chain risk management as a foundational requirement. Once we see that happen in the federal government, you can imagine that other industries, other regulated industries that are ha- have a high level security requirement will start to flow down the same kind of requirements or similar requirements. Because again, we're all one ecosystem. There's a lot of interdependency.
1: Mm. It's interesting because I have a friend who works for a company that Shall not be named, let's say, but they recently—I say recently—it was a few months ago now. But they had a—they had a hack. They had a, an attack, and guess what happened after that? So much focus was put then on the security of their, you know, of the of the systems and everything. And it's like, why isn't this effort and finance there? Like uh, pillar is a perfect word for it. There needs to be these pillars in place. It shouldn't be. a a retroactive uh, response to something. It needs to be a proactive response, you know.
0: Sam, I couldn't agree more, and we've been talking about it for most of my career, that security should be built in, not bolt on. The challenge is is that for a long time, time to market and functionality trump security. And at the end of the day, we as a society have accepted the risk you buy software without knowing where it's coming from or doing anything about it and you continually do so you expect that at some point your system got to be hacked so that's why you buy an antivirus and VPN and firewall because you assume there's going to be vulnerability and your tax is to buy you know 30 products as opposed to you know it demanding more now we've seen fundamental shifts microsoft today is a hell of a lot more secure than it ever was even 2 years ago and it continues to get better and if you look at where the hackers are going they've Almost stop focusing on the OS because it's just too hard. There's so many softer targets like the application layer or third-party uh, services or a whole variety of web-based attacks to get in, or you know, social engineering. Before, where before, it was all about target the OS vulnerabilities. Now they still exist. We see them in things like Apple and and uh, Google and other platforms and and in Microsoft. But the numbers have dropped significantly, and they're really sort of high value. And you think about the bug bounties. I mean, they pay a lot of money now for an OS attack, whereas 10 years ago, there were a dime a dozen. You see where the attackers are going. They're going to the soft targets. And so it's about pervasive, making that same level of investment that we did in OS and in platform security to the software stacks, to these front end systems. And to the apps, you know, what we think of as apps, the, we have to hold them to a higher standard, because at the end of the day, when you say oh, I'm willing to accept the risk to get that cool widget or to get that function faster, and I'm it, the CISO is is you know banging on the door, of the CIO say, no, don't accept that risk. We've got to give credence. What your friend's organization is probably living with right now is that switch where, oh, we've been hacked. Now we have to take security seriously. But someone is thinking on the board, well, why didn't you take security seriously two days, you know, two years before this event? And it, it really is incumbent on the boards and on the fiduciary owners, the CFOs, the COOs to take stock of what is their risk. And I think that's something that, you know, Zero Trust and Supply tricks Management are really trying to enable is giving you visibility to make those determinations, because a lot of times you just don't know unless you have the evidence and the artifacts to start assessing. Well, how exposed are we to ransomware and how fast can we recover? I think if you think about the last two years and all the ransomware attacks we've had across the board, the one key learning is that anyone is susceptible, every industry has been hit, how fast can you recover? How fast can you get back to normal operations with, again without paying the fee, you know the decrypt key? Is the fundamental questions, and some organizations have gotten back online much quicker because they had the proper backup and disaster recovery plans. They had the ability to you know go back to bare metal and recover their systems from a known good image. Others, it's weeks, months before they've come back online or have had to you know literally go buy all new servers because all their systems are corrupted.
2: I think you're uh, right to point out that everybody cares about security two days after the uh, security at- attack and, and they maybe didn't before. Now, now you've been doing this for quite some time,
0: Steve, so I'm wondering, who hurt you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it, I... I I can clearly say I've not been hurt, although I'm not making that a challenge to anyone that's listening. Um, But I, you know, early in my life, I started out sort of with that hacker mentality of, well, how do how do things fall apart? How do systems break? It really sort of fascinated me to sort of see how I could get through the door on, you know, early software protections back in the '80s um, and network security, and so that was fascinating to me, and that sort of led to a career of understanding how the adversary thinks is how you build a better security approach um, it's not just about applying you know cryptography or you know firewalls everywhere you can it's about understanding how things fall apart and where attacker hacker will target you or get in that you can build a better security widget um, one of my mentors bruce schneier Famously said that before you can build a crypto system, you should spend your time doing uh, crypto and analytics, which is basically attack crypto systems. You you can't build a good crypto system unless you know how to attack a crypto system. And what he's basically saying is, you really can't build good security unless you fully understand how security breaks. And I think that's the thing that sort of has driven me throughout my career is I find it fascinating to see how to get in or where things fall apart. And then once you understand sort of those, you know, those fundamental flaws of how things don't work when you put them together, you can think about, well, how would I secure this knowing what an adversary knows, knowing what an adversary will do or could potentially do?
2: That's very interesting. We've had a couple of conversations on this show with um, security experts and hackers and a few people, and it always does seem to come down to the art of war and knowing your enemy. <laughs> it seems to be a theme developing.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it, it's very true. It's very true. And I think most if you go to most really good hackers and a lot of the security people, you'll find a sm- you know, that small little art of war book on their bookshelf. I have one as well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, um, talk us through uh, how did you get from uh, that sort of that, that sort of early hacker mentality to uh, to, to starting out at Intel because you've been there for quite some time now.
0: So that's a very good question, and it, it was a securitist route how I got into the security market. Um, I, as I mentioned, I was you know in the eighties and, and early nineties, I was a, a hacker and enjoyed that part of the technology, but at that time there was no sort of security career. There wasn't, uh, the internet hadn't really taken off yet. And so I was, my other love was biology. And so I actually took the pre-med route and was going to do bio research and uh, graduated degree in research biology, did some graduate level research and had a a break before I actually had to go all in and start med school. And so I helped a friend of a friend start a startup in 95 that was doing file and email encryption. Uh, sort of applying my hacker skills, you know, with the idea of I'll make some money right now and it'll be good to help pay for med school, which is expensive. Three months in, I fell in love and I was like, I'm doing to do this full time. This is what I want to do. And you have to remember, this is early 95. So we're talking, you know, at the time when Netscape went IPO. So suddenly there was some excitement in the air. The Internet was just starting to take off. And it was an exciting time. And so I did a, a series of startups through the nineties and two thousands in uh, mostly in the, what we call the application security space. So file and email encryption, uh, access encryption to legacy systems. And then one of my more successful ones was Sanctum where we helped create the web application security market. My fourth startup Sarvega, which was an XML security company was acquired by Intel in 2005. And uh, I've, I've, I've joked that, uh, Basically, I've been trying to extricate myself ever since because I've just <laughs> still having fun at Intel. And it, often, what they allowed me to do is to be able to take that mentality of how do I go solve hard technical problems, with the scale and impact that Intel brings to the market.
2: And so, what have the uh, what what have the the highlights been of Intel through those first few years? Before we get back into the the federal side of things, because I really do want to probe on the federal side a bit more.
0: Sure. So I came into Intel after the acquisition, and at that time, the, the head of the software group ha- had an idea. She wanted to uh, start what they call a pathfinding team. So Intel had classically had the labs, which looked at sort of the five to 10-year horizon of technology. You know, design a new chip takes about five years, so the labs are sort of thinking 10 years out. And then you had the product teams that were building you know, the chips within the two-year horizon. And what she identified, there was really no one looking at opportunities for innovation in the two to five-year range which in the term she used was pathfinding. How do we take either hardware that's about to come out or software capabilities today that could be hardened in hardware and innovate on those? And so she came to me and she said, Steve, what do you want to do now that you're Intel? And I said, well, I like being a CTO, but you already have one. So, <laughs> and so she said, well, what if you, I could give you the ability to do CTO like things on security for all of Intel. Um, so I said, Oh, so you'd be I get to play CTO with Intel's budget. I'm all in. And, uh, Basically, for eight and a half years, I ran security pathfinding for Intel. So looking at what we used to joke is these soft, fluffy layers above the hardware chips. So virtualization security, anti-malware technologies, web and cloud security, and sort of looked at those technologies and built products that led to things like DeepSafe, which is a collaboration with McAfee, who we ended up acquiring a few years later around using hardware to inspect the, the systems and prevent or detect malware activity from a position of below the OS, below the, the BIOS. I, I helped create the Intel's trusted cloud architecture of how do you verify and trust the cloud instances that you have at CSPs and, uh, and in uh, hosted in private clouds and be able to attest to the security of those systems to do secure boot at scale. And so I basically, my, me and my teams uh, that we built these innovative technologies that went on to drive a lot of Intel's capability in the sort of those upper stack layers of cloud security and uh, anti-malware technologies. And then back in uh, the 2012-2013 timeframe, Intel was going to double down and focus on the federal market and start doing real engagements. Um, And so they were looking to build out a technology capability. And so I became the first federal CTO for Intel. And have been building and working in that team, and built a, an architecture team and set of subject matter experts around various key technologies as they relate to the federal government.
2: Just on that um, Pathfinder role, how do you? I mean, how do you start on trying to look at anti-malware between the chipset and the OS? I mean, where does one start on that?
0: So it's a very good question. So fundamentally, start with what's broken, and so we looked at. You have you know, antivirus products today, they scan your system, they look at files, you know, how do they operate? And how come they continue, how come malware still works? I mean, you can have all the antivirus products fully updated and ready to go, and all it takes is the next zero day or some vulnerability and boom, you've got malware. And what we saw is that fundamentally, that approach was, was lacking two things. Number one, it was only as good as the information they had about what malware was doing. And so they could create a a DAT file or a signature for whatever new malware, but they didn't know what they hadn't seen before or hadn't gone to scale. And two, they were blinded to much of of the system because malware uh, had basically figured out how to lie to the OS. And that's what the McAfee semantics and all the others relied on is tools and APIs that the OS gives them to do their job. And so if a malware can lie or can hide from the OS, then it can hide from the malware, uh, anti-malware technologies. So we look at looking at that problem as how do we A sit at a place where the malware can't hide from us and B detect activity that is unknown. And is it isn't a signature? And so by being able to build technologies into the you know, leveraging chip features that allowed us to secure, you know, create a secure place to stand that was outside the purview of the OS, what we created was a model by which we could monitor the activities of a system. And be able to report into a malware or into an anti-malware product or into an antivirus or or a sim, without having that uh, the the malware recognize that it's being monitored because we were monitoring from the chip up as opposed from the OS down, and that you know place that secure place to stand if as we called it back then allowed you know it was a product called Deep Safe, which really was this notion of being able to boot early enough in the boot process before the OS before the the firmware of of the OS. And then give us a place to start monitoring the system from that point forward so that malware couldn't hide from us. And that was a, it was a, a, an innovative concept that has lived on beyond of how do you leverage chips to inform the virus and other security tools on the platform? One of our most recent technology releases called Threat Detection Technology takes that same concept of using performance primitives. You know, so how the CPU is telling the system it's performing and Doing heuristics on that to see we can detect ransomware early in its cycle because we can detect the activity that it does in the CPU before you ever see it do they harm on the OS. And so using the the CPU as the source of unalterable data to inform on the activities of what's normal and what's abnormal. That's the fundamental concept that we've really innovated here at Intel.
2: That's really interesting. So sort of separating the two then really. So you're looking for discrepancies discrepancies in what the OS is aware of and what's actually happening on the chip.
0: In some ways, yes. Wow, okay. As well as things that the OS could never be aware of because the, the malware is sort of lying, if you will.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to use that term, but I thought it was too uh, simplistic. <laughs> 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 but that's really interesting. Um, so on, on to that, the uh, the federal um, move then. So when you started working on that, that was a new department that you, you were getting into?
0: Yeah, so it was a a new entity that was stood up uh, in 2012. I joined in 2013 uh, called Intel Federal. And it, the, the goal was to be able to enab- enable Intel to go and directly engage the federal government in, in more than just an advisory sort of sell through. You know, in the past you'd buy, you know, the government bought Dell systems, HP systems, or got, bought services from, the, from Lockheed or bought you know, platforms from Northrop with Intel content inside. And we had a field team that sort of worked with those ecosystem partners to help the government understand what was there. But our engagement model was very much a sort of sell with kind of approach, you know, with the Dells, with the HPs, with the the Lidoses or at the time the SAICs. The idea behind the Intel Federal was, you know, for certain strategic reasons, what if we wanted to go do a DARPA engagement to do a research project with DARPA? Or in the case of the Aurora uh, supercomputer, we wanted to build a supercomputer with the federal government to achieve exascale in a faster timeframe than the organic process of just waiting for a natural evolution of technology. So it, it, required, it required you know doing a direct engagement government requires special compliance special contracting capabilities that are different from your normal business. And as soon as they made that investment, they quickly realized that, well that's great to do do a build a supercomputer and do a DARPA but how do we scale that business? We need to have technology that is fit for purpose that really sort of helps the government achieve its goals And so that very quickly they decided that they needed to have a technology arm and that's where I was brought in to help build that. And a lot of it's because throughout my career in security, I spent a lot of time with the federal government because they're one of the, you know, the key markets that understands the need for security. So I'd had a long history of working with the government. And so it was just a natural fit to jump outboard board and move back east and uh, start doing the federal role.
2: Was some of this part of um, an initiative with the government, with the government asking for some of this engagement? And then how did that engagement actually come together between Intel and the government?
0: So I think the the best way to think about it is that the tipping point was the government wanting to do exascale in a timely fashion, and so they had this vision of getting to an exascale capable supercomputer. So think about exaflops uh, of capability, whereas sort of the the state of the art was uh, teraflops at that time and petaflops in the in between. The goal that the government had said we want to get to exaflop, and to do that they needed to be able to get new chip architectures designed. That could operate at those speeds specific for that goal and to sort of like drive the goal. And it was a race because it's about, you know, how can we beat China to the goal? And that was you know, what, what drove the federal government. to do that, though required the government investing in industry to advance that architecture faster than waiting to 2038, which I think was the deadline that you know sort of if the chips just kept going as normal, you'd get exascale by that time. They wanted it faster by 2021 and 2022.
2: So was this a particular initiative from like the Obama government then?
0: Yeah, uh, it it was the the, the path to exascale, and so it was driven by the Department of Energy out of uh, Ar- Argonne National Labs and Oak Ridge, really about driving our supercompute capability. That was the first foray, but that was just sort of the, the 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 big impetus. You know, like we need to do something different here. Really quickly, though, it became well there are lots of other opportunities where the government and Intel, and it's not just the federal government. It's the federal government driving. The broader industry if you look at the, a lot of the darpa uh opportunities they're not about something specific for the dod a lot of them are advancing technology for the good of everybody whether it be things like you know the most recent uh deep Dive around fully morph- morphic encryption which is a novel concept it's great math paper but how do you bring that to practice how do you get that kind of property of a database that is always encrypted and so you can query do an encrypted query against a cryptid database without ever exposing the data in the clear that's a a powerful concept for everybody, for financial services, for healthcare. DARPA is the one that's investing to help advance that technology, and Intel's working with DARPA to build a, a next-generation chip to do just that, and to do it, you know, without requiring 12 days to get your answer. You know, so when you think about the opportunities, it's not that Intel is trying to be a, a Lockheed, not at all. It's where we see the strategic opportunity to use the government requirement or the government funds to advance technology for the broad commercial industry. And that's the way government is also set up. A lot of the R&D investments are about how do we advance technology for the good of everybody? One of the other initiatives we got you know, early involved in with things like the cancer cloud, how do you scale data and genomic sequencing across 12 different research organizations and deal with the compute problem of moving large amounts of data? That was a problem. And so how do we move the compute to the data instead of the data to the compute? And that was a government initiative that was also started during the uh, the Obama administration called the Cancer Cloud. Not the greatest name, but it's the idea of, (laughs) can I do cancer research without having to have the whole genome move around every time a a researcher wants it? Because it's petabytes of data. And they were literally before this, they were literally flying hard drives on airplanes to get the stuff moved over in a costly fashion.
2: Wow. What what else is in it for uh, for Intel other than sort of funding to advance technology? There must be some other. I mean, is there is there some other purpose for for Intel's involvement with the with the federal government as well in terms of the influence it wants to have?
0: I, at the end of the day, it's about how does that scale into commercial. So when Intel does an engagement, it's about the strategic importance of doing that. Strategic to Intel, we don't engage the government unless there's a value to the business units that allows them to take that technology to scale into the cloud, into financial services, into other adjacencies. Because it's really about, Intel is about commercial capabilities for the world. And so we engage with the federal government, we engage with other uh, you know, governments really around their requirements are not always that dissimilar from what a financial services company have. They have high security needs, they have high data processing needs, they have the need to be able to do edge to cloud kind of computing. You think about it, the federal government is some way a macro of use cases for various other industries. I often you know, talk about, well, why you know, why are we doing this particular project or this particular project? And the examples I use is because this enables industrial. This enables manufacturing. Healthcare has this kind of you know, what we do on a platform that's doing sensing at the edge for the government is the same kind of use case I would apply to an MRI machine being able to do the scan and analyze it before the doctor has to walk out of the room. So being able to do faster time to intelligence, faster time to data applies across multiple domains and i think that's one of the things that people don't realize the federal government has just about every problem that industry has you know we think about the dod a lot but think about the irs those are financial transactions that have to be protected across domains the va is one of the largest healthcare providers in the world uh the veterans administration and so they have the same problems that you know any hospital system or insurance carrier has to deal with so by solving government problems we're solving commercial problems too
2: so those first projects that you were talking about, you know, like the Cancer Cloud, for example, how how successful have, have they been as as projects?
0: So I think, you know, the different projects succeed um, at different scales. Um, so, for instance, the Aurora, there's been some announcements about how that's turned on and things, you know, the, the supercomputer for access scale is coming uh, and the first lightups have happened. I mean, that you know, was a, a big announcement out of Department of Energy. So we've seen the success uh, and continue. And there's, by the way, new advancements that are happening there to go, you know, to get more capability for, uh, under the power envelope that we're talking about. In the case of the Cancer Cloud, I think a lot of that was, you know, we needed to get a lot of infrastructure in place across domains and and organizations that were not necessarily the most tech savvy. And I'm you know, some of the, uh, the cancer research institutes and hospital systems. But we made a huge progress. One of the biggest progresses we made was something, you know, that sort of the, the science portal, which was a way for individual researchers to be able to access data across the different organizations. So a researcher at Sloan Kettering could access the gen- genome that's uh, hosted at San Diego and be able to do their research without exposing the San Diego researchers to the mutation they're looking for. So that privacy control was probably one of the key innovations that happened in the cancer cloud. There's a lot more work to be done there and I know that the current administration is looking to invest again in trying try to drive this sort of research collaboration and some of the ben- you know the silver lining benefit of the COVID vaccine research and the COVID genome research was really advancing the technologies to quickly understand the fact that we had a distributed computer architecture doing the genome mapping of the covid uh, virus and be able to do that in the time frame we're talking about was was a momentous shift in the technology advancement to make that happen we're going to see the use of that same capability of distributed compute models chopping up the genome and being able to distribute that in a logical way applied to a whole bunch of other pathogens and research projects. So I think we're continuing to innovate on the what was considered the cancer cloud of the of the 2014 2015 timeframe, and what we're going to do for a variety of different pathogens, cancers, and other uh, other key issues.
2: So the COVID uh, the COVID research and COVID vaccine work was built really built off the, those foundations that started in 2014.
0: A lot of those relationships and agreements, and, and the portals and the and the mechanisms for data movement helped enable then when these new technologies, and we didn't have the distributed technology or the cloud even 10 years ago to do with that. And so having that ability now with those capabilities in place has really changed the way we do science research.
1: Are you seeing these opportunities and thinking uh, within your own kind of teams, building something and then going to the client with those? Or are they requesting certain things and then you're having to kind of figure that out?
0: So the answer is both. Um, There's initiatives the government's doing, um, some of it around cloud or edge computing, where they have requirements and then ourselves and other industry players, you know, go in to understand what are their needs and then come up with technologies to meet their. At the same time, the government, you know, there's a regular cadence of covering government going out and understanding what technology is doing. They spend time at other verticals, they go to financial services in New York, they go to the telecom providers to understand how they do things, because they go to Google to see how does Google manage its data centers so they can learn and apply that to their own data centers. So there's it's bi-directional. In my, in my work with the federal government, it's really, I, I think of myself as sort of a herder of cats on both sides. I want to understand the federal requirements so I can translate those to technology requirements for my business units. At the same time, I need to be able to take what the coolest whiz-bang technology they're building and translate that into what is the mission need, or how does that advance a particular agency's uh, needs and requirements? So it's both ways. And part of the role of myself myself and the team that I've built is how do we facilitate that bidirectional communication?
1: From a contractual point of view, are you able to, excuse the terminology, but cross-contaminate the, you know, what's worked in one, for one, for one organization, and then say, right, well, we've we've learned a great deal here, we've developed something new, we've innovated here. We wanna take it to company X, and is that okay, basically? You know, is that something encouraged or allowed?
0: So it's a good question. Um, I think what you'll find is that depends on the contract and the kind of contract. So when you look at sort of the the, the defense industrial base, so the classic in, uh, engagement people like the Northrop's, the Lockheed's, the Raytheon's, and the you know 800 other smaller vendors, they're much more in the business of building things specifically for a government program, you know the joint strike fighter the you know the, this edge sensor those are very specific to those missionaries and they're building for purpose industry and that's you know intel Microsoft, Oracle, small software vendors, oftentimes the kind of contracts and kind of opportunities we go on are are an eye of building to the government mission. But there's a, you know, there's a uh, in the contract. It's the ability to take that commercial. Like all of us do that because we are commercial. At the end of the day, we're not a government contractor; we're an industry provider, just like Microsoft, just like Amazon. And so, it's all about how you structure those contracts. But the the government doesn't want. Honestly, the government doesn't want intel or microsoft to build some widget that they have to that's special for the government because a the cost would be high and then they have to support that thing what the government really wants is what they call cots or commercial off the shelf they want a product that they could buy just direct from dell that just does what they need to do now they may invest in intel and dell and microsoft technologies to get the product where they need to be but ultimately the goal is not to have to spend 20 billion dollars for a piece of software their goal is to spend the $2,500 for that piece of software. Maybe they did some NRE to get it where they need it, but they really want to be able to buy it through the commercial mechanisms. They want to be able to buy it and scale it and support it. They've learned the hard way that built for purpose or custom parts don't scale and, they, and they're and they hard to support long-term because you won't find an engineer that knows that particular programming model or that particular data structure you know, two years after the program ended. And we've seen examples of that—you know—legacy technologies that live too long, and it's a challenge for the government to maintain it. So they want commercial, the commercial industry to provide commercial capabilities. What they'll do oftentimes is fund the advancement of those technologies to meet their needs, with the eye that the commercial companies will just make it part of the cloud, so that everyone can get it, including the government.
1: Yeah. No, I I know all too well on on my end of things, building you know applications and. There's always this need for building things bespoke and unique. And, and, and that's, you know, it's totally possible, but like you say, the support that's necessary, software goes through growing pains, you know, you're going to find flaws, you're going to, you know, and and to have that maturity in place already is just a great, you know, leveraging, well, yeah, to, to leverage off basically.
0: Exactly.
2: Bringing it back to, uh, to, to some of the security aspects I'm curious about how the engagement changed as you went into the Trump administration and the um, the noise about Russian involvement and hacking in the elections. Surely that must have had a, a security impact in how Intel was engaging with the government.
0: So I, honestly, I mean, again, we the administration's come and go and there's you know, different priorities. But at the end of the day, if you think about it, the IRS still has to do what the IRS does. You know the the veterans administration still has to services the the role of the agencies and what their mission is doesn't fundamentally change across organizations some of the funding might but the the, the mission of the government doesn't change it's about serving its citizens and protecting the nation from foreign adversaries and other kinds of attacks so the technology innovation now what will happen from you know the Obama administration to the trump administration to the biden administration is certain priorities will shift Um, whether it be sort of certain initiatives become more more important versus others. We saw an uptick in in things like advanced communications. So 5G became very important under the Trump administration as a key enabler for the military, a key enabler for the civilian organizations of how are they gonna adopt 5G? How are they gonna deploy it? And so we saw an uptick in those 5G, 6G, advanced communications projects. Cloud was still there, but it was not at, you know, it sort of, you know, it came and went, there was a lot of activity and sort of it went stale. And then towards the end of the Trump administration, cloud started to pick up again. So we see, we see this, the, the, the macro priority shift, but the underlying what the government has to do still is is the same across every administration. Now, who the actors are that you're most care about from a security perspective may change and that's more about the world dynamic. So, you know, it was a lot. there was a lot of focus on China for the last several years, now there's a lot of focus on Russia. That, you know, like who the adversary is, you know, organized crime plays a key role. We've we've seen the different state actors sort of come and go as far as their level of focus from the federal government. But at the end of the day, the practitioners who are protecting those networks they care about who the attacker is, but ultimately they got to protect the network, and so that doesn't change. And so, even though there's a lot of you uh, want to call it noise of the politics above, at the end of the day, every every agency is still required to do their job. Um, and we saw, you know, certain things like the census was a huge deal during the, the towards the latter part of the Trump administration because suddenly we got to go count everybody, and that's. You know, again, there's people, but there's a technology infrastructure to help make that happen every 10 years that has to turn on regardless of what the administration is doing. And so you'll see those agencies do their job across administrations. And, will, you know, you see those kind of things. Most of the projects that we are involved with are more than four or even eight years long in many cases. So they, the, uh, once the initiative is in place, these are long-term contracts and long-term engagements that are important for the agency regardless of the administration.
2: So consistent engagement through the administration? Exactly. Does the focus change, though, in terms of security, especially with the Russian threats, I suppose?
0: So I think right now there's a heightened awareness. There's this understanding in the government space that cyber and cyberspace-based attack and warfare is part and parcel with broader conflict. Industry still thinks the cyber attacks as sort of you know organized crime or data breach or things along those lines. But uh, you know in the government we understand that it is part of you know land sea air space and cyber. they are all part of the same. And so if there's a conflict going on, there's going to be a cyber aspect to it. We see this in the Middle East a lot. We've seen this in you know in in Asia that as you know, political things happen, there's a cyber aspect to it as well. And so the shift right now is, you know, obviously there's a big focus on the on Russia and Ukraine because that is an active engagement right now. And so there's going to be heightened awareness as well as looking at, you know, the malware that's being you know, detected in the global scale. Because as we know with multiple of these kind of events, you know, malware doesn't just attack the target that they're intended for, it gets out. And so even if there's an attack going from Russia to Ukraine theoretically or to Belarus or wherever, it's not going to stay there. And so the world is on a heightened level of sensitivity, looking for those kind of malware signatures, looking for the the, the TDPs or the methodologies that are typically used by those adversaries to see, is something happening on my network or a part of my network because of what's currently going on in, in Eastern Europe? So the sensitivity will shift, but at the end of the day, you're still detecting malware. You're still protecting your networks and making sure that your systems aren't compromised, both in the cyberspace and in the physical space. Does it make
2: it harder, though, if you are dealing with a nation rather than uh, organized crime agencies?
0: <laughs> it, it absolutely does. They definitely have the resources, uh, a higher level of resources and a, a lot more patience. I mean, you look at the, the difference between a nation state attack and an organized crime attack in the classic sense the lines have blurred, and I'll explain that in a second, but oftentimes the nation state tax are much more sophisticated. And you'll find that when they get exposed, the vulnerabilities they're taking advantage of have been around for a long time but have not been disclosed. So it's a product that's been in the market, but known as you know, they've never released that it was a vulnerability. And oftentimes they'll stay silent for a long time before doing any damage because they have a, a mission, they have a goal, whether it's to exfiltrate data or to put malware into key systems, you know, waiting until it gets across. The uh, the barrier into an OT system into a you know an industrial control system. So they have patience. Organized crime typically is in it for the money, and so the goal is to try to get as much money as quickly as possible without getting detected. And so they have different motives, and so you're going to see different act- techniques used, different activities. A lot of times, organized crime get detected because their goal is to ransomware you and extort you for money, steal money, steal data they can use to sell, and so you can get detected when that happens. The blurring has happened, and we've seen this in the last several years that a lot of times because of the uh, purpose of the non-attribution, nation states will fund or provide capabilities to organized crime or other threat adversary groups to act on their behalf. And that's a way of sort of you know trying to trick the intended target for knowing who's attacking them and why. So if it's an organized crime, you tend to think, "Oh, they're after my money. They may not be after the nation's secrets. But in actuality, it's the nation state is using that as a front or as a facade or a smoke screen to get in and go after the real stuff they're doing. And we've also seen the tool exchange. So what was once the tools that you only saw nation states used, organized crime and and uh, other uh, threat actors are gaining access to those nation state tools and vice versa. So we're seeing a lot of that blending of those two worlds. So the attribution becomes harder. And when you don't have good attribution, you're not necessarily as well uh, informed of what the target is. Why are they in my systems? What's their end goal? How far and how deep are they, were they planning to go? So it, it puts a lot more work on the forensic side, as well as on the protection side.
2: And do you get involved in that forensic side as well, then? Is that something that Intel have a level of involvement in?
0: Uh, usually not. Uh, again, that's there's, there are industries and service organizations. We we have technologies where we help people understand, you know, how do you know if you have good firmware? How do you recover from good firmware? There's technologies we put in place to help people get access to that forensic data, be able to store it, be able to process it. So you think about what Intel does. We're really about storing and moving and processing data faster and better. And so forensic data is just like any other. I need to hold on to it for a while. I need to be able to make sure it's accurate. And I need to be able to distribute it to where I need it to be. So there are technologies that Intel builds to help enable that, as well as techniques and technologies for understanding how do you do memory scanning. How do you do? You know, we have we have technologies right now to allow malware to scan memory, um, anti-malware to scan memory, not just hard drive, at speed because that's one way to gain forensic knowledge of what's what artifacts are left in memory or that would go away across boot. Whereas file-based systems. Typically have persistence, and so malware writers are trying to hide stuff in memory for the time they're in, they're running, and then when you reboot it goes away. Being able to scan memory allows you to see that. So getting access to more parts of the system as part of that forensics is where we've typically gotten involved.
2: It's interesting you mentioned with the malware and the 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 nation states wanting to uh, or the nation actors wanting to 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 play the long game there. and you mentioned the solar winds attack earlier on, um, which was I think quite well. That's a quite a sizable data breach, <laughs> and quite long running as well. You also mentioned incident management. Did did the solar winds trigger incident management changes, or um, you know how how did that play out?
0: So there was a couple aspects of solar winds. The first step of it was the 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 actor. Breached SolarWinds' environment and was there for a long period of time to understand, to do what they call the information gathering, to understand how SolarWinds products were built, what were the key systems that were used for build, for development, so that they knew where to do the attack. So, that what they found is they were actually in SolarWinds for a long period of time to do the, uh, the information gathering, to do this, you know, so the surveillance, the reconnaissance, so they could know where to go infect what build servers were the build servers to go put their code on to do the change before the signature was applied so they could get in there so they, there was a, a a very long cycle there and then after the malware was delivered so they you know they did their attack you downloaded the latest version of solarwinds it was fairly dormant for a long period of time so it didn't just start attacking you it went it was it got in and was quiet and waited and waited till it gotten deployed broadly, until it did its own sort of quiet scans of the environment so they could make the maximum impact. And then you look at sort of what it did, it then would go out and pull down pieces from the internet to enable a new attacks and new capabilities beyond what the original malware did. And so that kind of sophistication is, is, you know, is indicative of what a nation state does. It's not just about the one attack, it's about leveraging that foothold to be able to go broad and go deep. And what they found i mean it's it's one of the reasons why there's been this focus on incident response and information sharing is that it took one of the security providers for one of the companies that had been breached so solar uh, solar winds was running someplace, and one of the detectors i believe it was fireeye, their monitoring console had a little blip you know it was anomaly it was an unknown thing that was there was some connection that was not a regular connection, so one of the uh, security analyst, you know, sort of, yeah, this is different. Let me go dive in, and see what's going on here, and was able to detect that there was anomalous activity associated with SolarWinds, and that opened the whole thing. And then it was, you know, the, the, they, they started communicating, hey, we got a problem here. Something's wonky with this product that's a standard product. And it, what worried a lot of people is that it was almost an accident that this got detected. The fact that someone was looking at the dashboard and said, hey, that's not right. It was not a red. Blaring signal. It was like a little blip on the thing, or a couple blips, I think it was. And so the the goal of a lot of the follow-on activity was how do we? A, I mean, a how do we make sure our supply chain is secure, but also how do we get better information sharing so that when something a blip occurs, we act on it, and that we're given the the ability to go find out what's going on. And so we share quickly. And the other key thing is that it took a long time from when hey. This company got a compromise before it got to, hey, Microsoft, you you should see this. And that cross-pollinization took too long. And so a lot of the information sharing, incident response changes and regulations are to help fast track that communication so that we can more quickly say, hey, something bad's happening at a much larger scale than one organization and share that information. Say, yeah, I'm seeing the same blip. Oh, go turn on the sensor to look for this blip and get that information into everyone's hands. And so that's what a lot of the follow-on activity... Is to really speed up the process of response and identification,
2: because it doesn't sound like we've moved on too much from the topic of the the cuckoo's egg uh, in forty years. Because that's that I think that was accidentally discovered as a discrepancy in uh, usage or like a you know a cent amount that was being charged a recharge rate, and then I think again. Trying to get contact through agencies, if I remember the book correctly, was again a difficult process. So, do these changes change overnight, or is this you know we're, we're what two almost well we're two years on from, from the, the solar winds?
0: About a year and a half.
2: Yep. Year and a half. Yeah, yeah. Just checking.
0: So uh, some of the changes happen fairly quickly. So the, the CISA, the the computer incident security uh, uh, agency inside of DHS was tasked by charter to be the central hub. So one of the things that could happen quickly is that there's one agency and it's their job to communicate to everyone else. And so instead of having to go figure out who do I report to, they've made, you know, this one agency, CISA, they are the ones to go report an incident or report your, you know, you've seen an indi- a new indicator. And then they have been chartered to both communicate to government, to so every agency and to industry and to international governments the information they've gotten. So that one of the quick things they were able to do is say, we're going to make a one point of context so that there's no confusion of who you report to, and it's their job to then make sure that information doesn't stay inside the government but gets out quickly to Microsoft, to Intel, to everybody, and to other governments, to the world, so that we can quickly identify where you know what's going on here and, and quickly res- move to respond. And so those kind of shifts can happen fairly quickly. The hard part is then building the security into the systems to better protect your build systems, to be able to better protect your software lifecycle. That's gonna take time because ultimately the industry has to change the way it does things and get better visibility and security on that. We've seen progress across that. So a lot of the big players have already adopted Uh, processes to better verify their build process, better verify the software that they're pulling in and making sure what goes out the door matches what went into the door kind of thing. And that, you know, specifically to target what uh, SolarWinds took advantage of. Now, the build security itself, let's call it a relatively quick fix, but to do that at scale, I think it's going to still take some time.
2: Is there something more around the the sort of response management as well to this? Like, you know, I've been, I think a number of people listening to this podcast and me from my time at Amazon and you from your time at Intel, obviously, still current at Intel, uh, is going to, you know, going to have that experience of dealing with an instant response and pages going off or whatever the the, the current thing is. How does the government approach that on a national scale or international scale?
0: So it's a really good question. Part of it is having the right processes and everyone knowing the – the key, key thing is knowing the process so you know who do you call and what their their job and responsibility is. And so on the government side, standing – having the right teams identified to go handle it and be able to work cross-agency. So if you look, again, deeper into those uh, those executive orders – there were some title changes and authority changes saying that you know DHS has the authority now to pull in from uh, the agencies that the agencies can no longer say oh, I can't share information it's now you are going to share and so part of it is just facilitating information flow and then giving DHS the charter to communicate with industry so that if you know Acme Bank is hacked and somebody detects it and tells CISA about it Cisa has the charter to go. it's not like oh I have to go find out am I allowed to tell your charter to go tell ACB bank their chief security person that hey you've been compromised and here's the data that we found of why you've been compromised so the change in authorities if you will to enable them to quickly communicate is what has already been done there's still a lot of you know legwork to make sure that every organization that wants to or that it's you know that's part of the industrial base whether it be financial services, critical infrastructure, has designated people on their side to then act on that information. A lot of the large companies, you know, through either because they have good policy or because they've been burned, have that capability. Um, I think that's the long pole in the tent is getting operational uh, processes in place for what do you do when you've been hacked. If you look at some of the the the, the postmortems on some of the big data breaches. Um, and especially when you look at sort of the non-financial services ones like capital, the, the capital pipeline, JBS in Australia, McDonald's, and all these others that have had large-scale data breaches, many of them, I'm not going to point on any individual, but many of them didn't have the incident response processes well-documented and practiced and trained so that when they did find out they were breached, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of confusion. Well, who do I tell? who's responsible? You know, do I call the CEO? Do I just call my local man? Like that process had never been tested and never and people hadn't been adequately trained. And so when you see what they've done afterwards, they they implement a better process. They have a list of who you call, they have training, but it's still a long pull in the tent of getting people ready for the incoming incident. Cause it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when.
2: Absolutely. I'm curious as to your take on 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 this. So, obviously, we can talk about things like malware. We can talk about the um, the sort of approach that, that people are taking to just you know probably lower level hacking. I suppose. How do you approach sort of misinformation level of hacking? Does that get considered at a government level? Like, you know, even from an, from a nation side of things, we know that you have like. Uh, Russian or extreme political ideologies infiltrating things like Facebook and portraying um, misinformation. Does Intel get involved in the government stance on any of that misinformation?
0: So it's really not Intel's place to get involved on that aspect of it. It's, but it, it is an area of really interesting technology. So I'll, I'll give you examples. So obviously, Facebook's got to figure out how do they protect Facebook or. Any social media platform of how do they manage and operate their platform, but when you look at sort of how how do you detect you know whether it be bias or potential misinformation, it really comes at the end of the day there's there's you don't have enough people on the planet to search every twit Twitter feed to find out you know is this you know legitimate content or is this inflammatory or is this pure play for misinformation. The answer is technology, and it's oftentimes you know machine learning and AI and analytics software being applied to be able to quickly identify what is potentially triggered um, as misinformation. And so there's some really cool startups that have come out, as well as the Facebooks and Amazon's others, building technologies, leveraging AI, leveraging machine learning, natural language processing to be able to detect some of that. And so in those cases, Intel technologies are helping to drive the use of AI to be able to do at scale NLP, to be able to process all that information and be able to say, yes, this is misinformation. Or there was a, a cool startup called Veracrip that basically would look at news feeds and used an AI to, to basically weight how biased the, the news thing was purely from an objective perspective. So it wasn't like, well, this is Fox News or this is not Fox News. It was just based on the language used. There are certain language that's used in, in that, it, commits a bias. It could be a, a left bias, a right bias, whatever bias. It was a bias AI that could detect that this was some level of bias and it would give you a rating of how biased that particular news piece was. That's some really innovative technology approach as to how do you get at this at scales? How do you determine what is considered good or bad information? Because really, this is a bigger problem. Is from a society, you know, information integrity is sometimes the eye of the beholder, based on your beliefs and on my beliefs and on, you know, what nation you're from is what you think is important or misinformation, because you know, propaganda is still propaganda. It could be good, it could be bad, and so truth, unfortunately, sometimes is colored by the eye of the beholder or the ear of the beholder. And so the challenge is really a a global challenge of how do we get better integrity into our information flows and into our sources? And that is something that's, I think, more societal problem. I know the government, international governments are all working on figuring out, how do we do this? How do we make sure that our citizens aren't getting polluted? And there's ways to do that from an information campaign, shutting down bots, being able to sort of label things. And we've seen that effect. We look at Facebook, you see, you know, certain posts get labeled as this potentially is got information misinformation or do you really want to see this kind of thing that's a start but at the same time you don't want to regulate speech because you know i can say i i'm a star wars fan i hate star trek it doesn't mean that i'm providing misinformation about Star Trek it's my opinion i don't hate star trek either but that would be (laughs) uh, i don't want to put that on the record there but that but again it's understanding what is you, know, you don't want to regulate speech, but you also want to be able to inform people who are relying on information sources about the integrity of that source. And that's really hard in the new information age.
2: I think it is. And I think um, I'm curious as to whether it's thought of as actually being a cybersecurity issue or whether it actually becomes more of a national or international security issue. Because returning back to what we were talking at the top of the call about the art of war, you know, you could argue that, you know, on, on the, the brink of being able to call what we're heading into now as a World War Three, that we might have actually already been at it for five or six years or even longer because we've been split, really, down the middle in terms of left versus right and extreme views. And, you know, we're being targeted now as uh, a West that is in disarray. Because there's, you know, we've had, uh, you know, all of the stuff that's happened to you folks in the US and all of the stuff that's happened to to us in the UK with Brexit and everything has been, you know, talk about the European Union has just been, we've been in complete political disarray for 5 6 years now right so is this the time to strike you know from russia's point of view it seems to me from a conspiracy theorist's point of view that maybe this is all part of it so i don't know if it, if if it is the sort of thing do we class this as cyber security yet or not
0: so it's a good question i think there's you would class this as an information campaigns these are cam- you know they're definitely when, it, when a nation state is putting out information for a particular political geopolitical or national goal there's it's definitely when you look at your sort of the, all the tools in your toolkit it is absolutely one that every nation employs how they employ it could be a cyber security issue so for instance you know automated bots compromising legitimate news sources to put illegitimate news feeds in you know comments that come in from an automated those are cyber security based tech you know cyber based techniques that are employed that could also be just our information campaigns so having your news agency put out false information is not a cyber problem, but it's the same information campaign or disinformation campaign, depending on how you know how you look at it. And so at the end of the day, it's one of the tools on the arsenal of every nation in their in their ability to influence or provide geopolitical uh, uh, activities. There is a cybersecurity and a cyberspace aspect to it, absolutely. And we've seen what we've seen in the last five years is the uptick on that side. So in the past, it would be, you know, and pick on Russian, in Russian TV, you'd saying one thing that's different from what the West or CNN would say. Now we're seeing much more of a cyber element to it, of you know, Facebook bots, Twitter bots, um, Instagram bots that are putting out misinformation or ones that are targeting key sources. That I mean, one of the things we're seeing a lot of now is what we call the force multiplier. So instead of having a million bots putting out information, they car- target key information sources, put information there, and then let humans do the, the work for them by propagating that misinformation from, a, from what they think is a legitimate source. And so they've gotten really good at amplifying it. So instead of having thousands of bots, which can be detected because you can see the activity, one bot that gets a thousand people to respond and act on is a much more powerful tool in their arsenal. But it's so de- there's definitely a cyber aspect to it, but it's not just a cybersecurity problem alone.
2: Feels like a pincer movement. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, go after the malware and the apps as well. I think we've uh, we've covered a lot. Um, <laughs> are there any things that we haven't uh, we haven't picked up on, Steve?
0: Well, I think we've covered a lot of. I think if you know, just to recap. There's a lot of, of heightened activity and, and, and sensitivity around security nowadays, both on the federal side and in the broader industry. You don't have to look too far into the news to see the yet another attack, yet another data breach. The, the key is, is that the change is that we have to, in, outside our organizations, start to take seriously both, how do we protect ourselves, and like you were just talking about, the incident response. What do we do when we've been attacked? And how do we recover to a known good state? And recognizing that it's not just going to be threat actors that are organized crimes, it's going to be nation states and that blended threat is what we have to deal with. Because, you know, there's a situation right now, like you said, in Europe, six months from now, there may be another situation. There's always going to be a political situation that drives those cyber attacks. Industry, governments, and, and academia all have to be vigilant across time and keep their system secure in the light of all the changing threats. And that's a, that's a key hard task. But I think the notional shifts that we're seeing around zero trust, around policy and supply chain risk management, are really some of the f- really good steps forward in helping organizations better secure their data and environments.
2: I think there's some positive points there on, uh, on what is an ever-increasing threat. At least there's an ever-increasing response. So <laughs> that, thank
1: you very much for joining us, Steve. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: <laughs> thank you, Sam. Thank you, Chris. It's been fun.
1: Well, that was Steve. Big conversation.
2: Yeah, lots to unpack there. So if you're not already terrified of World War Three and you're spending too much time on NukeMap uh, looking at the fallout patterns, then uh, you will be doing now.
1: Don't forget the positive actors, though. Let's cheer for the good guys.
2: Yeah, and next week we have uh, Michael Juhas. Am I saying that right? Am I pronouncing Juhasz, that correct? Michael Juhas.
1: We'll edit in oh, post. Michael, Michael, will
2: correct it for us. <laughs> next week we have Michael of Geek Recruiters who'll be talking to us about his progression from successful startup CTO to technical recruitment and all the things in between, like his books, training courses, and public speaking engagements.